Thanks. Yeah. Well, good morning and welcome, everybody. It's good to see you all here this morning. That was your social social cue to say good morning, but good morning. this is, this is going to be a rocky. It's brutal. Anyways, I'm I'm just giving you a hard time. So good morning. Yeah, it's uh, great to have uh, Josh. He is at anchor this morning, um, preaching. And so we're excited to have him uh, there, and it's exciting for to, to come here and to to spend some time with you as we study Psalm four together. And so I just want to welcome you uh, this morning. Um, one of the things that I do <coughs> that uh, kind of want to provide an opportunity for us here this morning is at the end of my preaching time, at the end of the time that we've walked through Psalm four. Um, if there's any questions that kind of come up as we're studying this passage this morning, or you know, just kind of wondering, you know, what about this situation? What about this scenario? Um, I'll provide kind of a live Q&A time where I'll do my best to answer any questions that might come up. Uh, usually I have a screen with my number on there, but I don't have that. So, um, but my number uh, is 517-245-9047. Um, that's 517-245-9047. So you can text that in, or you can just raise your hand, and I'll do my best uh, to answer uh, any questions uh, that might come up as we st- spend our time together this morning. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to you um, both grateful and in recognition of the fact that apart from your work in our lives, Um, Our hearts are cold towards your word. Um, Our ears are closed towards your word. Our eyes are blinded towards your word. And so we ask this morning that you would do the work that we cannot do. That is, that you would bring softness to our hearts that are hard. Um, That you would bring sight to our eyes. That you would bring, we would open our ears so that as we study Psalm 4 this morning, that you that your spirit would work in us uh, to bring conviction where conviction is needed, Lord, and comfort where uh, comfort is needed. And I pray this morning that um, as we walk through Psalm 4, um, that your son, Jesus Christ, would be lifted up and um, that you would uh, do that. That your son, Jesus Christ, would be lifted up in a way in which um, you lower me so that all that we see this morning is your son, Jesus Christ, and his um, generous work on our behalf on uh, the cross and in the grave and through uh, the resurrection. And so we lift these things up in your son's name. Amen. So if you'd like to follow along this morning, um, we'll be in Psalm 4. Uh, you can kind of turn there in your Bibles or on your phone. And... Um, I want to kind of begin by asking you a question or asking us a question. Um, the, the question I have for us is, what is your response when someone has done something wrong towards you? What's your response when someone's done something wrong towards you? How do you tend to respond? If you're like me, your natural response is you want to make things right. Right? You want to seek vindication. And, and we, we do this in a number of different ways. And so one of the ways that we seek vindication is 
is we try to get the person who wronged us to admit that they've wronged us, right? And, and so we try to relationally get them to see, you know, how they've wronged us or maybe even, you know, kind of twist their arm to get to that place where they go, okay, um, I've wronged you and I'm sorry. And, and, and honestly, most often the, 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 what we're trying to get from them is not for them to be repentant. It's just simply for us to feel vindicated, like, all right, I was right and they were wrong. Or maybe our natural response as we are wrong is simply if, if we can't get the person who's wronged us to admit that they've wronged us, then we go around to everybody around us and try to build our case as to why we're right and what they did was wrong to us, right? And, and so we find ourselves seeking kind of this vindication that way. Now, what happens if and when our pursuit of vindication doesn't lead us to a place where we get that vindication. What happens then? What happens when the person who's wronged us won't respond by, rec by acknowledging that they've wronged us? Or what happens when the people around us who we try to get to buy into the fact that we've been wronged, just they don't care? Or maybe they just say, you know, it's, it's, they don't believe us. What happens at that point? What, what begins to creep in? Resentment, right? Resentment begins to show up. And, 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 <clears throat> and, and when we allow our resentment to show up, what begins to happen is, is that we begin to um, get bitter, begin to get angry at people. We begin to grow in this kind of unthankfulness, self-righteousness, kind of just this, this really bitterness, I think, is the best, best way to describe that place that we end up in. What I want us to see this morning as we walk through Psalm 4 is that only the gospel can truly free us from resentment when we've been wronged. That the only way to be able to move through, to be able to get through when you've been wronged, without ending in a place of resentment, ending in a place of bitterness, ending in a place of just anger and frustration at the world, is through the gospel. The gospel frees us towards that. Now, Psalm 4, we don't have the exact context of what was going on in David's life as he wrote Psalm 4, but we have some kind of guesses that we can make. And, and what we think was happening was that David was probably writing this psalm as he was escaping, as he was running away from Saul. So David, at the beginning of his life, remember God graciously used him to protect the people of Israel, his nation, by using David to kill Goliath. And then after that, David goes and kills 200 other men, and David becomes very popular within the nation. And we find that David, who has been serving Saul, ends up, landing on Saul's hit list, and Saul tries to kill David. And, and as Saul tries to kill David, David ends up fleeing. And so it's in the midst of this that David, who, who, who is being wronged by Saul, and David didn't deserve any of this, that he writes this Psalm 4 and working through, okay, how do I respond to this place where I'm being wronged? So I want to look at verse 1 first. And in verse 1, what we see, first of all, is that the gospel frees us from resentment as we look to God as our defender rather than ourselves. It says this, 
Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, who does David appeal to after he's been wronged? Who does he appeal to here? He goes to God, exactly. It's interesting, right? Now, now why does he go to God to appeal to the fact that, or to res- in, in response to being wronged? He goes to God because he understands that God is the one who is not only sovereign, in other words, he's the one who, who holds everything in his, nothing happens outside of his control, but he also understands, as we see later on in that verse, that God has in the past taken care of David. He says, God, is, you've given me relief when I was in distress. And so there's other moments in David's life where he's going, reflecting on going, okay, God, you've given me relief in the moments of distress in the past. Therefore, when I've been wrong, the first place I go to is God. Now, what's our natural response when we've been wrong? Who's the first, pl- first person we go to? The first person we often go to is the person who, we, who, who has wronged us, or we go to people around that person who has wronged us so that what? So that we can get that vindication of, all right, I'm in the right, they're in the wrong, right? Now, those of us who have kids, and I've got four kids, which is about four too many, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I didn't bring them today. You know, they're, 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 they're crazy. It's like, it's like they take after me. I don't understand how that works. But I've got four kids, and, and we've got... Um, a, a, a 13-year-old, a 12-year-old, and then we, they were great kids. I was ready to write a parenting book after my first two kids. And then we had like a seven-year gap, and I forgot what it was like to have kids a little bit. And then we had two other kids who are now um, three and four, and everything I knew about parenting went out the door with my two younger ones. I know nothing about parenting anymore. That's what I realized. That, that my, my, my older kids had it nothing to do with me being a great parent, everything to do with the fact they just had temperaments that were easier to be around. What we realize, but anyways, within our home, right? W- w- where do my kids go when one of them is annoying or is wrong? The other one, where do they go? They go to dad. That's right. See, and, and and so our kids get it, right? Our kids get the idea that like me going to my brother or sister when I, when I, when 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 they're being annoying or they're doing something that's that's bothering me, that's not going to help because you know you tell my four-year-old son when my eleven-year-old son tells my four-year-old son to stop annoying him, what does he hear? He he hears. Oh, that's a challenge to be more annoying. Like that's that's what he hears when his sister tells him to stop that. But 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 what is she, what does my my daughter do? She comes to me. Why? Because I've been given an authority within the home to be able to talk to my son and say, "Hey, son, you know, we don't treat our sister this way. When she asks you to stop, you need to respect her." So it's the same thing. And so David, as he goes, he looks to God as his defender. And see, when we respond to being wronged by going first and foremost to the other person directly for the sake of vindication, now there's a difference between going to somebody who's wronged you to let them know that they've wronged you so that they might repent. That's different than going to somebody who's wronged you so that you can get vindication. But when we go to somebody who's wronged us for the sake of vindication, what we're doing is, is we're practically saying what? I am my defender. I am the one who's going to defend my name. I am the one who's going to defend myself. And what David understood and what the gospel does for us is that when we trust in the gospel, 
Jesus becomes our defense. Because our identity and our security are tied not to ourselves and to our own efforts, but are tied to Christ and his finished work on the cross. So David goes to God. And then verse 2 through 3. We see that the gospel frees us from resentment as we find our identity in Christ rather than in what others think of us. It says this, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And so what seems to be happening in this moment is that not only has David been wronged by Saul, but it seems that Saul is now spreading rumors about David. And so he's exchanging honor, David's honor, trying to turn it into shame. Verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, and the Lord hears when I call to him. I want you to notice two words here in verse 3. The first word is uh, set apart in verse 3. And what set apart simply just means made, makes a distinction. So what David is saying is he's saying, look, as, as, as those who have wronged me are slandering my name, are dragging my name through the mud, my, my, my hope doesn't rest in getting them to stop doing that. But my hope rests in God who has set me apart, who has chosen me. And what has he chosen me for? It says, for, he has chosen me to sit apart, what? The godly for himself. And that word godly is, it's, it's an interesting, it's, yeah, it's, it's a cool word because there's this word throughout the Old Testament, loving kindness. And we see this a lot where it says, God's loving kindness. And, and the word loving kindness throughout the Old Testament points to God's covenant-keeping love towards his children. And the adjective of the word loving kindness is the word that's being translated godly here in this verse. And so what that points to is it, is it speaks to the fact that those who have genuinely laid hold of God's steadfast love are the ones who are godly. And what makes David godly is that he has received, received God's steadfast love. And verse 4 through verse 6, or verse 4 through verse 5, it says this, and the gospel frees us from resentment as we are able to be angry without sinning. Verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. How many of you grew up, if you, if you, if you had the blessing of growing up in a, in a, in a home that, that, that loved Jesus and pointed you to Christ? How many of you grew up in that context with the idea that Christians don't get angry? I know I did. Right? Christians don't get angry. 
mean, it's interesting here, isn't it? Because verse 4, it says, be angry. But then it adds a second part to that. And what does it say? Be angry and do not sin. And so what this means then is that there's a place where anger exists apart from sin. Now, for those of us who grew up in that context where, you know, Christians don't get angry, there's an element of truth to that, right? And that um, we're not called as followers of Jesus to get angry in a way that leads to sin. But let's stop and talk for a moment about what does it mean or what's the difference between anger that leads to sin and anger that doesn't lead to sin? I want you to notice something here in the second part or in, in verse 5 because we need to put those two verses together. Okay. So verse 4 it says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. But then right there in verse 5, what does it also say? Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And so this is the key to being angry and not sinning. And verse, verse 5 is the key to that. See, the reason that we often get angry or, or, or the reason that anger leads to sin is because that type of anger almost always is rooted in a response to our pride being damaged. So when you think about what triggers your anger, especially anger that leads to sin, it's always connected to your pride. Okay? So when I get angry with my kids in an unrighteous, sinful way, it's because in that moment, my 12-year-old or my 13-year-old is questioning my authority. And that's an attack on my pride. And so what do I do in that? I double up, right? I, 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 I power up. And in powering up, I start to get angry and cross the line of sinning. But to be angry and not sin is to respond to injustice around you or to respond to sin around you and say, I am angry towards this, but it's not because it somehow is an attack on my pride or is, uh, is, is, is an attack on me. I'm angry because it is an attack on God and His character. And so... In my community, where we struggle with racism, not overt racism, but this covert racism, the godly response to that is, is to be angry. But, but, but not to be angry because it, you know, it fuels my pride and making myself feel better than those you know, people who, who, are, who, who are covertly racist. But no, I'm angry because in that covert racism is an expression that those individuals are not created in the image of God. And that is a direct attack on God and His character and who He is. 
and to be angry and to not sin. The only way that you can do that is if you allow your anger towards injustice, your anger towards sin, to be coupled with a trust in God and His care for you and His sovereignty. Because if you don't trust God and His care for you, if you don't put your trust in God as you are getting angry, what happens is, is that simply leads towards this place where you are the hero of the narrative, you are the one who is the defender, and you are the one in which it's, it's just all about you. I want you to look at verse 6. It says this, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, for you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What David is saying here, and this is the most important part, what David is saying is, look, look, God, I want you to, to, to restore the, the wrong that has occurred to me. I, God, I want you to, to work on Saul's life and so that he recognizes the sin that he's, that he's done towards me, that he repents of it. But, but God, even if all of those things happen, even if everything in the world is made right again, even if, verse 7, right? The, the, even if all the grain and the wine abound, even if life is perfect, that doesn't compare to the joy that you've put in my heart. And, and this is the hope that we have in Christ. This is what allows us in the midst of injustice to not cower away, in the midst of injustice to not get angry with, with a selfish indignation. This is what allows us in the midst of being wronged to not be crushed, to not go, man, I just quit and I'm finished and I'm discouraged and I'm done. This hope right here, the fact that, 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 that what we have, the most valuable thing that we have as followers of Christ is nothing that is connected to what is here on earth. So everything that we have here on earth, including what others think of us, are, are merely blessings from God, but they are not the things that we tie our hope and our security and our identity to. And so this is why Paul, in the book of Philippians chapter 3, is able to say, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I just want to remind you who Paul is. Paul is a guy who had everything. 
His family was wealthy. He had social status both as a Jewish citizen and as a Roman citizen. He had respectability within his church as a religious up-and-coming leader. And he says, all of those things, right? I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And when we come to that place where we understand that all of those other things are nothing in comparison to knowing Christ and being found in Him, when people are wrong, wrong us, or when people drag our name through the mud, it, is, it, it hurts and it's frustrating and, 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 and it's not right, but it doesn't crush us. Nor does it lead us to an anger that leads us to sin. Then he goes on in verse 9 of Philippians 3 and says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the only way for you and I, when we are wrong, because we will be wrong, the only way for you and I, when we are wronged, to be able to not be crushed and or to be able to not respond with an anger that leads to sin is to understand that our hope and our security and our identity and our treasure rest not in our circumstances, rest not in what others think of us, but rest in the fact that Jesus, who is in perfect unity and community and within the Trinity, having no beginning and no end, chose to step down to earth to live a life that we could not live, right? A life of perfection. And then to die a death that we deserve to die, bearing God's just wrath upon his shoulders. And choosing the moment in which he would end his life, take his last breath, where he says it's finished, being buried three days later, raising himself from the dead by the power of the Spirit, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And as we place our faith in Christ and in his finished work on the cross, what we get from that is better than anything we can get from all the wrongs in our life being made right. It's better than anything we can get here on earth because what we get in that is that we have not only a guarantee that we will see Jesus face to face one day but we also have this guarantee that our security our identity our defender our hope doesn't rest in ourselves but it rests in Christ's finished work on the cross and man there is no better way for us to point our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers to Jesus than to be able to 
as we are wronged, walk through and respond in the way that David responds in Psalm 4. To recognize that wronging, to be angry towards it, but not sin. Because, man, our hope doesn't rest in things being made right. Our hope rests in Christ who has made us right. Look at verse 8. This is the fruit of a life whose joy rests in Christ. The fruit is, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I want you to notice something. That promise of safety and peace and rest are not contingent on things being made right. Get that? The promise of peace and rest and safety for David are not contingent on Saul coming to him and saying, hey, I've wronged you, I'm sorry. They're, they're, they're not contingent on the temporal circumstances around us. And man, that's, that, that's, that, is, that is good news for us. And because they're not contingent on our temporal circumstances around us, they're not contingent on the, thoughts, the, the, the things that have been wronged being made right. That's why in the gospel we can be freed from resentment when we've been wronged. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you do in and through us. And we thank you, Lord, for your Son, who is our defender and our Savior. I ask God that you would help us to continue to grow and trust in you. So that we might be angry towards injustice but 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 not sin. And so that we might be angry when we're wronged and yet not sin. Knowing that our hope doesn't rest in us being able to make things right, but it rests in the fact that you are our Father. In your Son's name, amen. Um, we'll just take a quick moment. If anybody's, um, that's okay. We'll just let you stand back behind there <laughs> awkwardly. If anybody's got any questions or thoughts about it. Try not to make eye contact with me. That's that's the key.